Long ago, the four nations lived together in harmony. Then everything changed when the Fire Nation attacked. Only the Avatar, master of all four elements, could stop them. But when the world needed him most, he vanished. A hundred years passed and my brother and I discovered the new Avatar, an airbender named Aang. And although his airbending skills are great, he has a lot to learn before he's ready to save anyone. But I believe Aang can save the world. Welcome back to another episode of Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind featuring Esmo updates. <laughs> that was that was a bit less smooth, <laughs> Michael. But once again, Michael and I are here to give you an update. And Michael, do you want to tell us what the topic of today is? Well, today's topic is on non-small cell lung cancer, but I'm going to need a moment, Josh, just for that introduction. Both really enthralled by your impression of a fantastic show, but also desperately hoping that our podcast or this episode of our podcast doesn't get a copyright claim against it. Uh, oh yes, I forgot. I forgot about that. Forgot about copyright. <laughs> it's all right. We're not get, making any money from this, but um, yes, Avatar: The Last Airbender, a fantastic, a fantastic show. Yes. And I guess the link there is that we're talking about lungs, and the main character Aang is an airbender. Exactly. You got it. Very good. Okay. Very good. Yeah. I've clearly spent too much time with you. That's the problem. You clearly have. Considering we watched the whole series together and we both watched it individually multiple times, that's not unexpected that you got this. But why don't we jump into it uh, rather than talking about how great this TV show is. And if you haven't seen it, 100% would recommend. Kids and adults alike. But uh, yes, let's let's actually talk about what we came here to talk about today, which is non-small cell lung cancer updates from... ESMO. And we start with the Checkmate 77T trial. Now, as we have seen in the last few years for early potentially resectable lung cancer, so stage 2 to 3B, there is a real move towards shifting treatment from the adjuvant setting where it was notoriously ineffective. I think, Josh, the overall survival benefit at about five years was something small like 5 to 10% with adjuvant chemotherapy. So a lot of momentum behind this push towards neoadjuvant treatment. We've seen it in Checkmate 816. We've seen it in the corresponding keynote study whose number escapes me. I'm sure Josh will Google that as we speak. So the question that arises then, because as you know, oncologists uh, are always looking to squeeze every minute bit of benefit out of a specific treatment. So if neoadjuvant treatment works and immunotherapy works, why not add immunotherapy in the adjuvant setting, making it sort of a perioperative sandwich approach? And that was the rationale behind Checkmate 770. The study designed for Checkmate 770, it is a global randomized, double-blind, phase 3 study evaluating neoadjuvant nivolumab plus chemotherapy, followed by adjuvant nivolumab versus chemotherapy combined with placebo, followed by adjuvant placebo in patients with stage 2 to 3B non-small cell lung cancer. This year's ESMO presentation was a pre-specified event-free survival interim analysis. The key eligibility criteria were resectable stage 2A to 3B 
non-small cell lung cancer with no prior systemic anti-cancer treatment, an ECOG performance status of 0 to 1, and importantly, no EGFR mutations or known ALK alterations. The obvious explanation for that is if you have those with some of the Flora 2 data and some of the similar data in the ALK setting, it becomes not acceptable, I guess, to withhold the relevant tyrosine kinase inhibitors in these patients. Patients were stratified by histology, non-squamous versus squamous, disease stage, stage two or stage three, and tumor PDL1 expression, greater than 1% versus less than 1% versus non-evaluable or indeterminate. The primary endpoint was a event-free survival by independent central review, and the secondary endpoints were PCR rate, major pathological response rate, overall survival, and safety. There were also a couple of exploratory analyses, EFS by pathological complete response or major pathological response rate, and EFS by whether patients had adjuvant treatment or not. The median follow-up for this study was 25.4 months. In terms of the demographics, largely well-balanced. 64% of patients had stage 3A or B cancer, so we are looking at cardio of patients at a higher risk. Almost all patients were current or former smokers, and there was a pretty even split between pdl one expression, so there were slightly more patients who had a pdl one expression of greater than 1%. 36% of patients in the uh, nivolumab arm had a pdl one expression of 1% to 49%, and 20% had a pdl one expression of greater than or equal to 50%. So, the results. The one thing that I always like to look at with these patients is how many patients fell off or did not get to surgery. In the nivolumab group, 15% or 34 patients discontinued neoadjuvant treatment, though this was normally due to study drug toxicity. 20% had cancelled definitive surgery with 6% due to disease progression, 5% due to patient refusal, 4% to surgical decisions, 3% to adverse events and 3% to others. So it is not a small number of people, Josh, who are missing out on surgery, but you compare that to the chemo placebo group where 22% had cancelled definitive surgery and 20 and 10% of those was due to disease progression. So regardless of what you do, I think there is unfortunately going to be a number of patients who will progress and potentially progress out to the point where they are no longer surgically resectable if there is any delay to surgery. A big challenge will be to actually find out who these patients were at time of diagnosis, but that's not something that we are able to do just yet. In terms of surgical outcomes, there was no significant difference in the rates of R0 resection, 89 versus 90%, so 1% better in the placebo group. You can't really read much into that. In terms of the primary endpoint, however, the median event-free survival was not reached in the nivolumab arm versus 18.4 months in the placebo arm with a hazard ratio of 0.58, and this was statistically significant. Subgroup analysis revealed a benefit that was consistent across most groups, and we say this in inverted commas, the quote-unquote exceptions are patients with stage 2 disease who had a hazard ratio of 0.81 and a confidence interval from 0.46 to 1.43. If you compare that to patients with stage 3 disease, the hazard ratio is 0.51, although it's important to note that the median event-free survival was not reached in either arm, nevo or placebo, for the stage 2 subgroup. Patients with N0 disease had a hazard ratio of 0.8 and a confidence interval of 0.48 to 1.32, again, compared to patients with higher risk disease of N2 
uh, staging, had, they had a hazard ratio of 0.46. Patients with squamous pathology had a, had a hazard ratio of 0.46 versus non-squamous. We had a hazard ratio of 0.72. Again, not really surprising as squamous pathologies across tumor types do tend to have a better response to immunotherapy than non-squamous pathologies. And the last group where the benefit appeared to be slightly less clear was never smokers, but there are only 44 of these patients in the whole trial that enrolled 450, less than 10% of patients were never smokers. But the hazard ratio there was 1.32. There was a correlation between response rates and pd one expression. To illustrate, patients who had a pd one expression of less than 1% had a hazard ratio of 0.73 for EFS, whereas those with a pd one expression of greater than or equal to 50% had a hazard ratio of 0.26. Yet another reason, Josh, to check a patient's pd one status even before they have metastatic disease. Because up till recently, we didn't really bother checking mutations or pdl one status for patients in the early stage because we knew they were going to get surgery and chemo. Knowing this information wouldn't have changed our approach. Nowadays, though, that sort of information is becoming more and more important. So if you have an early stage lung cancer patient who's getting neoadjuvant treatment or is being discussed at an MDM, make sure they have a... Uh, tumor next generation sequencing to look for mutations, but also a pdl one expression level. In terms of PCR and major pathological response rates, these were higher in the NEVO group. PCR rates were 25.3 versus 4.7%. So with NEVO in this approach, a quarter of patients are getting a pathological complete response with neoadjuvant treatment. Major pathological responses were present in 35 versus 12% of patients. So again, much higher rates. Now, of course, the follow-up question is, does this actually correlate with better outcomes? And the jury is still a little bit out on that, but there is a trend in this study towards suggesting that if you have a PCR or a major pathological response, you are going to do better. In terms of safety, treatment-related adverse events were roughly equal in both groups. There were higher rates of AEs leading to discontinuation in the NEVO group, as mentioned before. Treatment-related severe adverse events were also slightly higher in the NEVO group, but there were no unexpected signals in either treatment-related SAEs or immune-mediated SAEs. It's sort of what we've come to expect for nivolumab. So to summarize, neoadjuvant nivolumab plus chemo followed by adjuvant nevo demonstrates statistically significant and clinically meaningful EFS improvement versus chemotherapy with placebo. Exploratory analysis suggests correlation between PCR rates and improved event-free survival, and there were no new safety signals. The one question I did have, and I suspect this is more of a standard approach with these trials now, but there was no chemotherapy given in the adjuvant control arm. Uh, It was just placebo versus nevo. And the question is, is adjuvant chemotherapy dying in resectable non-small cell lung cancer as an approach? I suspect the reason it's not done is because the chemo is put neoadjuvantly and it's basically a one-for-one substitution. There's probably, as we've said before, not much benefit to be gained from putting more chemo uh, in the adjuvant setting. But it was just something that I thought was interesting that in the adjuvant setting, it's nevo versus nothing. And this study does have a competitor. It seems like the checkmates and the keynotes are going blow for blow because there is a 
Keynote 671, which had a very similar study design. I think it was published in the New England Journal of Medicine either this year or last year. Similar study design, similar hazard ratios with a hazard ratio of 0.58 with the pembrolizumab plus chemo with the adjuvant pembro approach. Again, no chemo in the adjuvant setting. The estimated 24-month overall survival, which is data that we don't have for Checkmate 77T, was 80.9 versus 77.6% with a p-value of 0.02. And in this study, that did not meet the pre-specified cutoff for statistical significance. So it will be interesting to see if Checkmate 77T can build on the promise of its presentation and give us some good meaty overall survival data because its competitor doesn't appear to have cleared that final hurdle, even though it too had a superior event-free survival rate. So remains to be seen, but Josh, potentially exciting uh, times in early non-small cell lung cancer and really a shift away from adjuvant and towards neoadjuvant. Hey, Michael, I have some questions for you. I'm sure you do, Josh. You always do. I always do. The complete pathological response was 25% in the intervention arm and a measly 4.7 in the control arm. I did find one of the studies, and that was the Checkmate 816, which is purely neoadjuvant nivolumab. And they had a pathological complete response of 24% and 2.2% in their standard of care control arm. And my question is this, like, how do you, how do you engage with that trial while slightly different and this trial, which wants to keep giving adjuvant nivolumab? Well, I think with that trial with 816, they only had four cycles of Nevo. Is that correct? I believe so. Yeah, so I guess the there's always this question about residual disease and how confident we are with an R0 resection. As we said, uh, the rates of R0 and R, R1 resection were similar in the two groups, but there's always this question, and we see it in the rectal cancer space as well, about micrometastases, distant metastases, and do you actually need extra treatment? Do you need a Nevo booster? And will that help? Ultimately, we don't know. The pathological complete response rates are one thing, but I think when you're talking about lung cancer, as opposed to say breast cancer, which lung cancer probably, I think it's safe to say, has a higher risk of having micrometastatic deposits very early on in the disease, just because of how aggressive it is, you might need to upscale treatment. But that would be a question that would be answered um, by the long-term outcomes in this study. This is only an interim analysis, so we don't have all of the data, but long-term outcomes where you're looking at three, four, five years and you have some overall survival data will show us whether that extra Nevo is any good at, you know, eliminating the residual disease, which ultimately is what's going to kill these patients. You know, they recur and they often recur distally. It's not necessarily the primary if they're able to cut it out and get an R0 resection. Yeah, there, that's a good answer, Mikey. And I'm looking at the the Checkmate 816 and I'm just doing a brief perusal and the overall survival was not statistically significant in this trial while the event-free survival was. So I agree with your sentiment that having some longer-term follow-up would be very nice in this cohort of patients. Yeah, we've said it before, EFS does not necessarily translate into OS no matter how nice the numbers and the curves are. Josh, a very exciting study to talk about, and we've done our usual thing of talking for far too long. Why don't you take us to our second study, which is 
once again, your favorite subject, and that is antibody drug conjugates. As I sip my tea, I am ready to talk about antibody drug conjugates. Just call him Uncle Iroh. That's it. The, the article Michael and I are discussing today, while I'm taking the lead on this one, is Datopotamab Deruxtecan. You might recognize that as a similar to Trastuzumab Deruxtecan and other Deruxtecans versus docetaxel in previously treated advanced metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. This was a phase three tropian lung O1. You might recognize this because there's been some prior updates, but this gives me shivers of excitement. Michael and I know, and you might know, that docetaxel is generally a pretty common second-line treatment for metastatic non-small cell lung cancer once you've progressed through the standard of care regimens there's not very good second line options would you agree with that michael most definitely it's really really bad when someone progresses with non-small cell lung cancer because you don't have anything left really especially if they've had chemo io no and nothing's really been able to best docetaxel which just blows my mind to be honest yeah until potentially now so hold on to your seats and hope you have a seat belt on so dato dxd is a trop 2 directed adc which selectively delivers a potent toposamarase 1 inhibitor payload directly into the tumor cells so bye bye payload bye bye cancer cell happy person with cancer who has less of it there was promising prior activity with the, the phase one showing an objective response rate of 26%, which while sounding low is quite remarkable in the scheme of the stuff that we do. You know, the standard line I always like to use is the, it's the rule of diminishing returns, Michael. For each line of therapy, you're going to have less response, but generally it's about a 10% response rate. Key eligibility criteria, advanced or metastatic lung cancer, good performance status, no prior docetaxel, and you were allowed an actionable mutation and you were allowed to have one or two prior approved targeted therapies and platinum-based chemotherapy and less than or equal to one anti pdl one monoclonal antibody. So that's quite nice that you've actually been allowed to have the standard of care. So this is a trial which is randomizing people to DATO DXD, which we're abbreviating this to, or docetaxel with a the dual primary endpoints being PFS by blinded independent clinical review and overall survival with a host of secondary endpoints, which I'm going to say you can probably guess what they are, but that's objective response rate and duration of response and safety. This was a phase one study update. The demographics were generally well balanced. 25% had squamous histology and about 55% of the patients had great, had one line of prior therapy and a further 36 had at least two prior lines of therapy. About 600 patients were randomized between the two arms and a small number had actionable mutations with the predominant being EGFR mutation and a small smattering of other mutations were present. To highlight a couple of interesting facts, by the end of the follow-up of this trial, three times the number of patients were still on DATO DXD versus docetaxel of 18.6%, which was a 
which equated to 52 patients versus 17. And I know I kind of already jumped to that, but that's already some exciting news. They have three times the number of patients on the intervention arm and the control arm at the end of follow-up. Looking at the duration of therapy, 20% had more than nine months of therapy and only 8% of docetaxel had more than nine months of therapy. When you're looking at the intention to treat, there was a hazard ratio and this is for the PFS, the hazard ratio was 0.75 and it was statistically significant. And there was a doubling in the objective response rate of 26.4 versus 12.8%. And the duration of response was 7.1 versus 5.6 months. So not too bad, Michael, which I'm really happy with. And if you look at the ongoing slides, there was a clear divergence in PFS benefit. They did find some interesting side notes, Michael. It was that non-squamous pathology had far more benefit from DATO DXD versus squamous and actionable mutations that were present. So what you can see if you go through the slides and there's a they break it down between non-squamous and squamous. And for the non-squamous histology, the hazard ratio was 0.63 for the PFS and the squamous histology was actually not statistically significant between the two arms. So really, really interesting. And then the objective response rate peaks to 31% in the non-squamous versus 9% in the squamous looking at DATO DXD. So you can see there is a subgroup here that very much benefits, but the squamous does not appear to do that. So that's something that's really quite unique in this study. There's questions that arise from this, including is the non-squamous benefit driven by those with or without actionable genomic mutations? And what they found is that those with non-squamous histology with or without actionable mutations still derived benefit from DATO DXD. So patients who had non-squamous EGFR mutations would still have benefit from this drug. The secondary dual endpoint was overall survival in the intention to treat, and this is an interim analysis. And the final reading has not yet occurred, and the hazard ratio is 0.9, but not statistically significant, with the median overall survival being 12.4 months in DATO versus 11 months in docetaxel. There's a trend, but we have to wait for this to happen. Looking at the safety data, couple of things to highlight and Michael you might know this from prior trials but immune related adverse events was something to be interested in specifically that of ILD or lung fibrosis or pneumonitis or whatever you want to call it there were seven patients who had ILD that was grade five that is very significant it is and i was like holy moly so eight percent had an ild event in the dato dxd group and i've used a number of adcs where it's a you know it is a potential risk but this seems quite high but i also wonder what the real world data will be versus the trial data because these are previously treated many with immunotherapy which might increase their risk of having an ild or pneumonitis so that's something to flag the other thing to find out is ocular events were quite high so 20 percent on the trial mostly dry eyes and tearing and stomatitis and oral mucositis was quite high up to 54 percent of patients on dato dxd the classic kind of 
chemotype toxicities. You saw rash 12 versus 6%, more in dado DXC, anorexia 23 versus 16%, and more diarrhea favoring docetaxel. So to conclude, and I hope you stayed with me, Michael, it's a little bit confusing and I will summarize. Dato DXD shows statistically significant progression-free survival for patients in the second line, at least the second line, who are treated versus the standard of care, which is docetaxel. The predominant benefit is seen in those with non-squamous histology, irrespective of their mutational status, and those with squamous histology did not appear to derive a benefit at this stage. Overall survival is still pending, but is looking somewhat promising, and there are a number of toxicities that we need to nut at a little bit more, specifically looking at the pneumonitis picture, which seems a little bit high and a little bit concerning for my liking, but also an interesting sidebar. A couple other points to bring up. Lots of discussion here. The drug antibody ratio is only four to one. And from memory, I think trastuzumab deruxtecan is eight to one and TDM1 was two to one. This does impact efficacy of these drugs and it's about finding a stable linker and a stable payload. But that is something that can be worked out. There was ongoing questions in the, the discussion part about do we need to measure TROP2? We generally don't because it's highly expressed in most cancer cells. But he did highlight a very important point that Michael and I have yacked on about for a millennia. We need further biomarkers to attach to these ADCs to give us better outcomes. We need to be able to figure out who will benefit from these the most. And that is something that we need to sort of figure out over the next five or 10 years as we work towards zero cancer deaths. Yes, I think that's a very good public service announcement, Josh, really. The treatment of second-line non-small cell lung cancer remains, as we have said a couple of times about a couple of different areas in oncology on this series, a bit of a dead zone. There's not really that much, but hopefully ADCs are the key. But Josh... Our third study, and apologies, this episode has gone on for a little while longer, but there is a lot to discuss. The third study that we want to talk about is a phase one study, and you were talking just about having better biomarkers for patients with pre-treated non-small cell lung cancer. Well, to quote Monty Python, this study has one, and there are some that call it TIM. That is TIM3, which is a novel biomarker, a potential new target for the treatment of pretreated non-small cell lung cancer. So this is a safety and preliminary efficacy study of AZD7789, which is a bispecific antibody targeting PD-1 and TIM3 in patients with stage 3b to 4 non-small cell lung cancer with previous anti- PDL1 therapy. The background of this is that TIM3 is implicated in immunosuppression, immune system or T cell exhaustion, and therefore failure and resistance to immunotherapy. Sabestamig is a monovalent bispecific antibody that binds to PD1 and TIM3 that aims to reinvigorate T cell function and improve anti-tumor immune response, therefore thereby preventing immune fatigue. It also aims to increase tumor cell phagocytosis and antigen presentation among myeloid and dendritic cells. TIM3 is highly expressed in non-small cell lung cancer and may be a resistance mechanism to PD-1 blockade and immune checkpoint inhibition. The study design, this was a phase one first in human study that went by your fairly standard three by three design which we have discussed in previous episodes. The inclusion criteria, patients had to 
be at least second-line therapy, and they could be obviously uh, more heavily pretreated with stage 3b to 4 non-small cell lung cancer. They had to have a primary or acquired resistance to anti-PD-L1. They could be of any PD-L1 expression, and they had to have a good ECOG performance status of 0 to 1. As with most phase 1 studies, the number of patients recruited was fairly small at 45, and 36 patients received a biologically active dose of sebestamic with Five, which is 550 milligrams or higher. Now, Josh, if I was to tell you or discuss or pitch you a phase one study that was mainly looking at safety and toxicity and you're expecting dose-limiting toxicities, would you say that some patients had a really tough go of it as we started to get to a, a dose that was too high? Michael, I would. I think that's a pretty low bar to set to for patients and what you want out of a trial, I would be hoping for something more. But you're such a nice guy, I probably would have said yes anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, well, it was a bit of a leading question. So the great thing about this study is that there were no dose-limiting toxicities at any dose level. There were no grade 4 or grade 5 toxicities, and any grade toxicities only occurred in 60% of patients. This is when we're sort of fumbling around in the dark. That sounds a bit disingenuous, but we are spearheading away towards finding a dose that would be appropriate for wider use. So there's no frame of reference. And for there to be no DLTs and no severe toxicities coming from someone who's worked in phase one all of this year, this is actually quite incredible. The most common treatment related adverse events were decreased appetite, nausea, increased creatinine levels, fatigue, cough, anemia, dyspnea, and asthenia. Responses were seen in biologically active doses. Four patients had a confirmed partial response and eight patients had a duration of response of greater than 24 weeks. So obviously this study was not powered for efficacy. This is only preliminary data. And I would like to see this study and this TIM3 um, semester meek used in a larger study where we can confirm its efficacy. But the fact that semester meek is very, very tolerable, it is a bispecific antibody, so you're not just targeting TIM3, you're also targeting PD-1, is positive. And if there are some responses, then that's just the icing on the cake as far as a phase one goes. It's also important to mention that these patients were selected to have inherent resistance to PD-1, which, as Josh mentioned when he was talking about DATO-DDXD, once you get resistance to IO for non-small cell lung cancer, options are very thin on the ground. And so rather than finding a new agent, this study is actually trying to spruce up an old agent by overcoming that resistance, which would be fantastic. One of the holy grails of oncology as a whole is keeping old treatments going and overcoming cancer's resistance mechanisms. So recruitment is ongoing with semestimic monotherapy in heavily pretreated patients with a PD-L1 of greater than or equal to 1%, and also in first-line immunotherapy naive non-small cell lung cancer patients with a high PD-L1 expression of greater than or equal to 50%. This could be the start of something very promising, Josh, but of course, as we always say, remains to be seen. It is nice though to see that they're trying new tactics with immunotherapy. And that is that is the challenge because we have all these drugs and they lose efficacy. So if you can change that, you're changing the landscape of oncology forever. Well, you mentioned a little while ago that you were involved in a similar trial that was focused on overcoming resistance because 
I think that that is one way that if you if we can do this to any sort of decent level, you're extending the life expectancy of patients, but also the the shelf life of existing treatments. But Michael, let's not beat around the bush and hold our listeners too long. What are we doing tomorrow? Next time, we will be talking about melanoma and cutaneous squamous cell cancers. And there are a couple of interesting things here. So we hope you will join us again as we approach the end of our epic ESMO spectacular. See you then, Mikey. Bye. for listening to Oncology for the Inquisitive Mind. You'll find previous episodes on our website along with weekly posts, resources and links to our Twitter and LinkedIn pages. Check it out at inquisitiveonc.com. That's inquisitiveonc.com. Yeah.